so I'm with you guys again. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> God damn it, these last two weeks, it's like, no, I see nothing but, like, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, you didn't see no, me yesterday. We, we saw... I'm actually rather getting sick of you guys. I'm glad we're just talking on the phone now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as beautiful, as beautiful as you guys are. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yesterday we saw John. Um, John, if you're listening, thank you for meeting up with us. Before that, Liza came over for the weekend, so we saw her. Hi, Liza. And uh, before that, Philip was here, so so much planning stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, it's been fun, though. It's been fun. Yeah. Anyway, um, so in the news these days, Tom Wolf passed away. You guys ever read Tom Wolf? No, I haven't, honestly. I know his books. I've never, I've never actually read them. Well, The Bonfire of the Vanities is really good. I think it's, it's very funny. It's like a satire of 1980s, kind of like yuppie, upper middle class New York right. City. I also highly recommend I Am Charlotte Simmons as an unintentional comedy. Because <laughs> he's like, he wrote this in like 2004. He was oh, I heard like about a 79-year-old man yeah. trying to write what it'd be like to be an 18-year-old freshman girl at like a prestigious uh, university that like parties a lot. I swear, never outside of elementary sex ed have I ever read the word mons pubis as much many times as i have in that book what? it's just bizarre <laughs> that's ridiculous that dude never had any like uh me too moments or anything like that right he he, he uh, got through his life fairly clean or something i don't know i mean he's anything. so ancient i'm sure he pulled some shit but it's, i think like maybe like all his victims passed away or something like, I don't know. Happened no, no, yeah. Or something. yeah you know what's funny is like i went to the wikipedia his wikipedia page and like all he did is get into fights with like other ridiculously um, famous and liter- like literary figures. Like, like John Norman Updike, Mailer types? I, I, assume, Mailer. I assume these like, were physical fights, were they? No, no, no. I mean, they were like grudges in like literary mags. He seems like a very catty person. I mean, just like look at his picture and he's like in his white suit. Well, I bet you back like in the day, that's how they julep. that's how they stayed relevant. They would they would you know everyone would be like, oh, I wonder what kind of what kind of uh, you know what kind of thing he's gonna level at him this time, you know. And I think that <laughs> they, they stayed relevant by being catty with each other. Uh, also in the news, Ronan Farrow, he apparently has like a big book coming out that's going to make NBC look really bad because they put the kibosh on the Weinstein story. Didn't we already, didn't we know about that? But like, I guess I mean, we knew about it, but he's going to actually write a whole book about it. And Ronan Farrow, I mean, I have no capability of judging like journalism talent or whatever, but I, I like him solely for the fact that he hates Woody Allen so much, just like yeah. I do. <laughs> Same. So I, Same. I'm rooting, rooting for him. Obviously not his real father, but still. <laughs> Did you ever read? His, <laughs> that's right. His, that's um, right. Is is Dylan his full his full blooded sister or? I think so. Uh, I, I or I supposedly. I well, I don't know. He's Ronan is definitely like half Frank Sinatra, right? He, Dude, I'm looking he at the picture exactly here. Exactly like Sinatra. There's no way that's not a. I'm looking at the picture here and the Jezebel article about his book, which is called Catch and Kill, uh-huh. and the dude is Frank Sinatra's son. Frank Sinatra is objectively a more handsome person by a shade. Than, than Woody Allen. Yeah. Although, you know, there are instances in which uh, ugly men have very beautiful children, like uh, Steven Tyler. Yeah, I guess that could happen, yeah. Although, you know, like Steven Tyler probably, who knows what he really looks like because, you know, he did so many drugs and he has had so much plastic surgery. Maybe, like, underneath it all, he was maybe, like, at least an average-looking person, but... That's true. Yeah, I mean, that's like... Have you guys read um, Dylan Farrow's piece? I think it was in LA Times. I think I may may have skimmed it. Okay, like there, there's still like this huge amount of weird like Woody Allen like protection. There's like a whole protection scheme around him. We got into it on Twitter today with that. Oh, very randomly. I think these people are like searching for their names like daily, and they're just like coming in and and and, and obfuscating facts and stuff. But like, I'm sure there's some team out there 
If, like, Kevin Durant has secret burner accounts, I mean, come on. Like, someone like Woody Allen must have. <laughs> that's right. Some, that's right. Some His team, publicists you know? have, like, 100 burner accounts that they... Uh, but I mean, to, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I know we're gonna we're gonna have um, you know, it, it, I don't, it might be somewhat related to what we're gonna talk about in this pod later. But like, she goes. Dylan's been maintaining that Woody Allen had had sexually abused her for since she was young, and no one pays any attention to it um, or, mm. or believes her. And she goes into um, L.A. Times with you know quite a bit of like momentum from you know Me Too and all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. And she starts saying. You know, when are people going to really take, when are people going to be consistent in what they call out? And so she has this really, I think a really devastating part of the, everyone should read it. Um, There's a part where she quotes uh, certain actresses like Kate Winslet. So, yeah, so she she quotes Kate Winslet saying something, you know, they're all saying stuff about how Harvey Weinstein's a monster. I think they had Kate Blanchett as well. So they, she says, you know, kind of what their public quotes about Weinstein were very damning, very indignant. But then the things that they were, the way they responded to questions about Woody Allen after appearing in his movie were like, you know, I don't know much about that, so I can't comment. All I know right. is that he's a wonderful director, you know. And, and he's she, always treated me with with respect. Yeah, like, that, right? yeah, exactly. They had this very high proof of, of, you know, high burden of proof with him. Wow. Like the hypocrisy that she's pointing out, like nobody cares. Well, they always trot out Moses Farrow, her um, other adopted brother, who is very vocally against Mia Farrow. So one of the one of the one of the ladies who uh, was arguing with us on Twitter about it was like, he found true love. That's totally a pedophile argument. Like every pedophile says that. One more knock against Woody Allen. Midnight in Paris is is a god awful movie and. If you like that movie, you are not a good human being. I'm sorry, I have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's as that that's that's um that's as bold a statement as me calling all people who like the iPhone uh, uh you know molesters or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was what episode six. Wow, that that seems like a while ago. <laughs> that was the, yeah, that was a while ago. Escape from Plan A. Excuse me, is this seat taken? Oh, um, I'm sorry. I'm not like a gross guy trying to hit on you or anything. I just, I can't find a seat. Okay. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Believe me, I know this place is filled with skeezy guys. I think the whole world is. <laughs> I think one is our president. God, don't remind me. I'm Dave. I'm Michelle. Uh, I, I gotta say, I really like your t-shirt. Wait, oh, yeah, well, the future is female. I know. Look. No. Okay, well, Dave, on behalf of all women, we thank you so much for your support. Hey, would you maybe want to hang out sometime? You mean like a date? <laughs> yeah, like like a date. Um, no thank you. Okay, bitch. What? I'm wearing this shirt and you won't even let me not. Hey, hey, what hey, the hey. Hi, and welcome to Escape from Plan A, Plan A Magazine's podcast. I'll be your host for tonight, Oxford Condo, and I am here with Teen. Hey, Oxford. And Mark. How you guys doing? All right, so tonight we are going to talk about, I guess, a rather recent scandal, the uh, Eric Schneiderman disgusting affair. So yeah, this popped up, I think, uh, on May 8th. That's when the news broke, and that's when he resigned. And I remember I was, I think, going home on the subway and i see i was on twitter i see schneiderman on the on the uh, trending and generally speaking it's like not good to be trending on twitter especially these days it usually means you're like dead or you <laughs> yeah. or you rape someone or yeah whatever so i right. see him and i'm thinking and i i click on it and i see like oh he resigns amid scandal so i thought this was like another elliot spitzer 
It's like, oh, great. He must have slept with some hooker. And I didn't really know Schneiderman that well. I mean, he, like, popped up every now and then. Like, oh, he's going to, like, go after these crooks on Wall Street. I mean, maybe it was all words. But that's just the headlines I read. And I thought, you know what? If he just, like, slept with, like, a like a hooker to and cheated on his wife, like, like whatever. But then, I, I mean, you read the article and you're like, wow, this guy's a fucking psycho. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It went beyond. Sp- the Spitzer ended up kind of beating up his uh, girlfriends too later. Yes, yeah, I wasn't aware uh, of that. I, I I only knew about the um. I've got her name, but yeah, he he was like on Ashley Madison or something, wasn't that like the yeah. big yeah. downfall? Yeah, and, and yeah. yeah, at least he was involved with high class hookers. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but yeah, he was a scumbag too. Yeah, and I think this like Schneiderman is just the latest of this supposedly progressive man, particularly white man. And yeah. know, it turns out he's totally full of shit. And I, can you guys think of maybe a, a bigger, like, full of shit hypocrite than Schneiderman lately? Well, I think the guy who started it all, or not started it all, but that was the uh, the, the big fat domino that's, that tipped everything was extreme. I mean, he mean, was right? probably about as, if not more hypocritical um, than Schneiderman in, you know, his, his association with uh, feminist uh, causes and touting himself as like a really progressive uh, force in, in media. Wait, who are you talking about? Uh, Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, but like people like knew Weinstein was a scumbag. Well, that makes it even worse in a sense because they they allowed him to keep the appearances up. What made Schneiderman even worse was that he was like the parasite who tried to use Weinstein to elevate ah. himself <laughs> into For this sure. spotlight. Yeah, of... that's true. Mm-hmm. Oh, because he said he was the anti Weinstein, right? He was he was going to make his career, you know, uh, tying up all the loose ends that uh, Cyrus Vance. The Manhattan prosecutor left by, you know, failing to prosecute That's or right. investigate Weinstein or whatever. I mean, it's all to me, the whole thing, like, you know, as between Cyrus Vance, who was is the Manhattan, you know, the Manhattan D.A. and mm-hmm. uh, failed to prosecute Weinstein, Weinstein himself and Schneiderman. It, it's like human centipede, right? Yeah, They're just like feeding is. off of each other and trying to bootstrap each, you know, themselves to be heroes off of the failures of the other. And, and all three of them are pretty much like irredeemable but anyway i have the the new yorker article in front of me so i uh, highlighted certain passages so here's one it says at a press conference he meaning schneiderman denounced weinstein saying we have never seen anything as despicable as what we've seen right here (laughs) other than yourself (laughs) and then it also says uh, the New York-based National Institute for Reproductive Health honored him as one of the three champions of choice. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, wait, is that, is that choice, um, get me a threesome or I'll hit you? Is that the choice? Oh, uh, I'll, I'll get to that part. Just one second. Um, <laughs> We've got a okay, whole so other... <laughs> this, this woman that he saw, Manning Barish, uh, says she says that he also told her if you ever left me I'd kill you. Um, oh, this yeah. this part's mm. golden. He says okay, so when he he's with this uh, Manning Barish woman, and then she tells him about this uh, demonstration that parents from the Sandy Hook murders were gonna do, and he he says he dismissed the effort, calling the demonstrators losers, <laughs> and and then he says, oh look at little Mimi, so cute, she's working. I mean, seriously, if I said like, if I said Donald Trump said that, everyone would believe it. Right, uh, but uh, Mimi, who's Mimi? Uh, I guess the the Manning Barish. I guess that was her nickname. Oh, and then um, oh, once she uh, uh told him not to jaywalk because it was against the law, and he said, mm. uh, like, I am the law. 
<laughs> Whoa, like some you got a of, badass over here. Like a comic Wait, book is, villain. Um, I thought we were talking about uh, a Schneider, uh, uh, a Schneider man, but th- that sounds like Doctor Dread <laughs> or Judge Dread. Sorry. Um, Judge okay. Dredd. Anyway, so the uh, so this is I think probably the the most disgusting part. So he was dating some Sri Lankan woman named uh, Tanya Savaratnam, and uh, yeah, this was the part where she says he was obsessed with having a threesome, and yeah. pretty much tasked her with finding the woman. He's like he's even too lazy to find the woman. He like mm, makes her do mm. it. Uh, oh, this is this is the, uh, the I guess the money shot. He started calling me his brown slave and demanding that I repeat that I was his property. Yeah. So he he wanted a master slave relationship with the brown girl, huh? Yeah. I mean, you hear about like these mm. race play blogs on Tumblr. I mean, I I, I kind of want to believe that most of that's bullshit, but then you read the stuff and you got to believe it's real, huh? Well, she said it, right? I mean, that's <laughs> part of it. Yeah, she said it. Why would she lie about that? I mean, it doesn't necessarily make her look great because she stayed with him too. Though actually, you know, there there are indications that people knew that he was this shitty, right? Yeah, uh, Trump said Trump said something. Yeah, Trump said something tweet. way back like five years ago, saying guarantee that Schneiderman's, you know. And you know, I I hate the Trumpers, but I will have to say, I think they fully deserve to gloat over this because this is just such hypocrisy. Sure. Such. Yeah. You know what? You know what? I was amazed by just as a pop culture thing, is that I watched this show called um, Designated Survivor. And in that show, there was an episode like a few days before this came out about like this lawyer who was up for a federal judgeship that was sort of similar to Eric Schneiderman. Oh, really? He didn't he didn't like hit people or whatever, but he used his position of influence and his reputation as a champion of women and as this like good liberal white man. Okay. Okay. To seduce and to pressure and to like you cajole the women under his power mm-hmm. into sex and into relationships. So they were picking up on that, the, that um, hypocrisy. And- yeah. And, and I must think, I, I have to think that Cal Penn, who's in that show and has been in the government and in the democratic liberal circles for a long time. Yeah. He worked for and Obama. Consults right? and helps the right mm-hmm. just knows that archetype knows these types of people and sort of nudge the writer's room to like write that plot in. Also, don't know. I don't know if like two instances indicates any trend, but like, what's up with these like South Asian women who end up just being totally used and abused by these disgusting white New York politicians? Because I mean, you got this Tanya Salvaratnam woman, and then you had uh, Huma, oh yeah, Huma Abedin and Anthony Weiner. It's just like, is this just a kind of, like a coincidence, or I don't know what the hell is going on here? Maybe, uh, maybe Schneiderman was trying, you know. Uh, was jealous of of uh, Wiener. I don't know what the hell. I don't know. He wants to get his own documentary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, if you're Schneiderman, I mean, he, he quit, like, real quick after that story broke. Like, yeah, it's like, he must have known he was, like, guilty. There's nothing he could do. He's just like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go hire my uh, legal team and uh, just... Yeah, but <clears throat> but the thing is, if you're him, I mean, <clears throat> if you're just thinking sort of big picture a little bit about how you're going to you're going to deal with this. Don't doesn't Spitzer and Wiener kind of like set the precedent that you probably will get a second chance. Yeah. And just don't be epic, epic fuck ups. Like those guys were. Wiener had like five chances. Yeah. Spitzer. And he fucked them all up. Had a, Spitzer, same thing. It's the same thing. He got himself back on television. There was talks about, you know, political um, rehabilitation for him. And then boom, next thing you know, he's, uh, you know, at the hospital and uh, arguing with his girlfriend who's got a black eye or whatever, you know. Um, if you're Schneiderman, you're probably thinking, all right, if I just if I just get out of here real quick, make a real hasty exit, 
you know, maybe the news dies down a little bit and maybe in a year or two, you know, um, I reach a settlement with these women and they, they kind of like lower, you know, lower the energy on the accusations and I'm back. All right. So moving away from the Schneiderman ordeal as, you know, as filthy and just kind of like all consuming as that is, I want to focus more on how this is kind of a wider pattern of, I think, something that started with Trump, which was this disillusionment with the idea of this kind of like white benevolence, this um, arc of justice bending towards something good. And it like it, it was devastated by Trump. But I think what Weinstein did was it also destroyed this myth of not only just white benevolence, but white liberal male benevolence. And I think that's relevant to Asian Americans because I think what has been so central to the kind of like mainstream Asian American liberal ideology is this idea that white people, especially like white men, are just your your path to overcoming whatever is holding you back uh, in in becoming more American and leaving behind all the the bad things about Asian and taking with you the things that are salvageable like food and festivals and and some clothes or whatever. So I think that's what Weinstein broke through. And I think that's why people like us and I think a lot of people on Twitter, both Asian men and women who felt stifled before because we owed this like allegiance to this white liberalism has now, we have much more freedom to talk about it. And Schneiderman is just the latest, just blast against this uh, formerly standing wall. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think that the the way that it feels for me is kind of like, I mean, you have to kind of step back. Like, I think like we're all in a certain mind, like in a certain mind space that's like dramatically different than it was, you know, just two, three years ago. The way that I would say that it kind of felt like how, what like racial progress and what, what being like a, um, a, an Asian guy or a non a non white guy in America felt at that time was like well, let's say specifically as an Asian guy, there was this sense that it wasn't that you were trying to be it's not like you were trying to be like a white guy it's like that there was this sort of promised land of diverse inclusion where everyone sort of got to be who they wanted to be which was very much mirrored in like the ensemble comedies and stuff on television like something like Community or something and. Yeah, like white guys were there and they had this, there was sort of a, like acknowledgement that the privilege of being a white guy allowed them to ascend into this world first. And then certain, you know, there were like kind of hip, kind of nerdy black dudes got in there. And, you know, the same like hip, nerdy Asian girls got in there. And as an Asian guy, you were like, I felt like it was just waiting for inclusion into this world. And this world was, like, post-racial. It wasn't about, like, being like the white guy, even though the white guy was always in the center of all these uh, media representations of this world. But he just happened to get there first. They were all, like, they all had the right politics. They all were open-minded. Racism didn't exist. It was, like, a fantasy world where everyone just got to be their true selves. And it never felt exactly right. Like, it never felt, like, I never felt like, Oh yeah, that's exactly what it's going to be like. But it kind of felt like, well, that is kind of like a rough, a rough approximation of what the world is going to be like. It's the best you can. It's the best you could hope for, something like that. I'm not. I'm not going to say that that's totally gone. I think that there is definitely still a belief in that. But yeah, I think Trump and and um, and all the things that have happened to him and, and and me too have really called that into question. I think we're still kind of dealing with the uh, the fallout. Of that idea, that space, that that sort of utopian space. Yeah, I agree with that idea that there, there was this. I there was this, uh, especially like an Asian guy. You you saw that there was perhaps a path into it. Maybe we weren't first priority, 
but we would eventually get there. And it, the uh, superficially, it was all about being diverse and all that. But what it really meant was you you dig deep into your whatever your background is. You find out what is pretty much marketable to other people. You take all that. You go before pretty much like like a like a white council, and you are asking for acceptance. And and this is what I mean by white assimilationist liberalism. And the problem with this is that the the acceptance rates are never always are equal across the groups, especially across the genders. And you see this with like black people in which like black men seem to have found more of, of like a social cachet more than black women with Asians. It's the women over the men. And it's either or. There can never be true parity because ultimately you're still asking for acceptance uh, from white people. And it always fascinates me uh, when I look at South Asians because South Asians are still... Like, like I think white people don't really know what to do with them because they're they're quite new to this country, uh, even for Asian Americans. And I remember when movies like Bride and Prejudice and Bend It Like Beckham and like TV shows like The Mindy Project came out and all the South Asian guys would be like, how come all these South Asian women only have like white boyfriends on screen? Uh, but then the tables got turned in the last couple of years when, you know, Master of None, The Big Sick and, you know, to a lesser extent, something like Homecoming King, uh, which was actually about uh, Indian guy finding like the Indian love of his life, but he does talk about, you know, worshiping white girls in high school. Then all the South Asian women got upset. I think they see, like the, the South Asian women see what could happen to them when they look at black women and the South Asian guys see what could happen to them if, when they look at Asian guys and neither one of them wants to end up like those groups. Uh, so you see this tension and fighting. And I say, this is not a bug of the system. This is a feature. It is designed to do this. Right. Uh, it, the divide and conquer strategy has been used by, I think, everyone, but especially, I think, in, in the recent history. And by recent, I mean the last probably 400 years of uh, Western colonial history um, to divide, you know, populations. So this is what they do. And Mark, I know you're definitely not a big fan of the Democrats. So, I mean, you often <laughs> rant about how uh, you know, how much they suck. So I, I do think that Trump and everything has given, especially Asian Americans, freedom to be more, uh, develop our own unique political perspective. Maybe you can talk more about that with respect to the Democratic Party, especially because like a lot of young Asian Americans identif have identified very strongly with the Democrats. Well, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's funny because, uh, you know, I, I considered myself a Democrat for a long time, you know, definitely more liberal, um, progressive. Um, but, you know, like, like what Teen talks about, there was, Definitely this idea that, you know what, like, I'm not going to see many politicians that look like me, but at least the people in the Democratic Party aren't overtly racist and they're going to have my best interests at heart if they win. And for a while, you know, growing up, I, I was a child in the 90s. Um, we did have, you know, that sort of benevolent seeming white dude in, in office, right? Bill Clinton. And, you know, for a while we had some Republicans, but then we had Obama and, you know, it seemed like it, it was going to be OK again. But then, you know, the Democrats kept on losing. And, you know, as I as I became older and more sophisticated and as I've talked to people like Varun and other people who are more who have who have knowledge of what's of the inner workings, it's sort of like, oh, wait, you know, I mean, you saw that how Asian-Americans were were seen, you know, and the, the Bedesta emails come out and you're just like. Well, they're just using us. And if they can't beat someone like Trump, then why should I have this allegiance to this party? Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, that I'm going to become a conservative and a Republican. 
but I'm not going to wait to be accepted anymore. I'm going to start running for office. I'm going to push my agendas. I'm going to, you know, speak my mind about and criticize the party. So it, it is an opportunity, I think, for the younger, maybe, or maybe even older Democrats to be like that are Asian American to get your voices heard. Don't wait. Yeah, because there's a there's a lot of things fucked up with the Democratic Party's platform that we previously felt it was it was kind of like uh, part of the deal that we just had to accept. I mean, I think foreign policy is a big one. I mean, the like the demo like Democratic ism whatever that is it's a weird blend of various um policies and ideologies but they've always been very hawkish like if you look at like the 1960 election you know jfk you know tried to run to the right of of nixon when it when it came to you know being anti-communist and all that and when you when you look at it nowadays with uh you know a lot of american foreign policy experts regarding china as the main rival in the in the next century for America. I think a lot of Asian Americans, we, we just had to kind of ignore that fact because it was a very inconvenient fact that the, the party, the only party that could really protect us from, you know, like like the white revanchists in the in the Republican Party were a party that like in its very like DNA of believed in like American exceptionalism and like Pax Americana in a kind of like, a kinder way than maybe like the neocon version but right, still. right, exactly. It's like they weren't going to just kill us and take over our countries, <laughs> but they weren't exactly going to love us at the same time, right? So it's like if the, if the only choice was between open racism and basically warmongering and the other party was just sort of hawkish and saber-rattling and very condescending, then we'll take that choice, right? But I think the election of Trump and and basically just you know, the, the, the racism of, I think, even Democratic officials and not standing up to the enemy imaging of Asians, you know, it was just sort of like, well, neither party is going to serve us. So we're going to have to try to, you know, we're going to have to fight stronger for ourselves. One thing to know, like, I don't want to, I, I don't think for me that it's it's really about, oh, I need to get my electoral you know, my partisan politics in, oh, yeah, in, sure. uh, in order here. And I got to go through the issues list and see where I fall. Am I maybe more conservative than I, I don't, I mean, honestly, like, you know, I know where I fall in all the hot button issues of the day. And I've never really found them to be that relevant anyway. I think that it does give space now to like what we're talking about here, you know, the interplay between, you know, domestic and foreign policy and stuff. I think it's just, it's a good opportunity for people to start reading a little bit more about political economy and, 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 and things like neoliberalism and how it works and how it affects how our personal histories as Asian immigrants kind of fall into that. Oxford, you had done, you had tweeted an article, um, I forgot the name of it, I, I really, it was a really good sort of like one of the best like um, introductions to American... Oh, the Counterpunch article? Yes. Yeah, the Counterpunch article. Uh, maybe we'll include for the listeners. It in the we'll notes. be including that in the reference resources, but please continue. Yeah, please. it was one of my favorite articles. I'm glad you had uh, retweeted it um, and, and and read it as well. And it's about how American foreign policy towards um, Asia and really like a lot of what explains most of the histories of Asian Americans, like kind of like how we came here and what what the situation on the ground was in Asia, whether you're Korean or Chinese or you know from Taiwan or wherever, uh, Vietnam. It really kind of starts right at the end of World War II, this article does, and sort of maps out what the American grand strategy in, in, in Asia was, and and that ties directly into our lives. So anyway, I don't want to get too far into this, because I know we're talking about, you know, um, white, white dudes and Trump, but 
to that question, though, I mean, I do kind of want to go far afield in the sense that when you talk about, like, things are opening up, I, I think it should be a much more fuller, like, opening of curiosity of, like, okay, what what is the context of everything that's happening here? Because I don't – it is interesting to note, like, the personal dynamics of – I'm not saying this this is a very important thing, but, like, the the way that the, the accept – or the, the treatment of of minorities differs by gender. And that affects us at a very daily personal level. I do think that it's it's worth kind of going and reading articles like the ones that you retweeted to say like, no, the story's re- this, that's a that's a symptom of like a much bigger system. And I just think people should just read more about I would say leftist takes and critiques of neoliberalism. And yeah, and um, there's a book I read uh, in the last few months. It's The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. And the way to link this with more like everyday. Asian American, especially mm-hmm. like Asian yeah, male concerns. Book, is, yeah. Like if you go into like the Asian male rights, like something that like everybody hates like passionately and for good reason, I think, is like the sex pat phenomenon, especially in places like Thailand and the Philippines. And there's a whole chapter in the Shock Doctrine dedicated to the uh, the 1997 Asian financial crisis, and that thing started in Thailand. And I, That's you know, right. like, I, I'm sure there was like a like a thriving uh, sex trade industry in Thailand, but it was after that crisis that it really ramped up because like the country needed money and this was uh, a pretty reliable way to get like foreign foreign cash into the country so like yeah this is how it's all linked and you know like 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 the imf and the world bank this is not really a republican versus democrat issue they're both allied in supporting these institutions and like before you couldn't really question it because uh, um you know both parties supported it and like isn't like Jim Young Kim the the president of the World Bank or something still? I don't know. He was like appointed to to one of these positions uh, recently. So it's like uh, it's all part of the system. You couldn't question it because you know the Democrats are supporting it, and if we don't support the Democrats, who are going to support? But now that the whole thing has right. been scrambled to you know, fuck all, now we can actually start really examining what these things are all about. Well, yeah, and and the whole sex bat thing is not just um, in Asia. I think. Um the uh, podcast Champagne Sharks uh, in one of their recent episodes, I think it was part three of their series called Forgotten People, Throwaway People, um, starts with uh, something I guess maybe the BBC did about, uh, I think it's in Kenya, uh, where um, it's a known phenomenon where like 30% of children under the age of like 15 go out and earn money by offering their bodies to, you know, white male tourists. Oh, fuck that. So it's um it's a huge concern. And then part of it, part of the uh, pushback and cleaning it up is that if they uh, come down too harshly on that, the um, 70% of people who are just there as regular tourists will just not come. And then, you know, the country will just be... The, the economy suffers, yeah. Yeah. So it's horrible. I wonder if I wonder if Richard Posner ever did a uh, supply-demand graph showing why that's actually a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wasn't he ousted for like harassing his his female clerks? Really? You're not thinking of Kaczynski, are you? Um, actually, no. Yeah, I think that's nice You're yeah. not thinking of Alex Kaczynski. Really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> poor Richard Poser doesn't deserve that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he deserves worse, maybe. Um, absolutely. I think yeah. Start with that article. I really think that article was like a great uh, the counterpunch article. It it was just a really really good dive into how. It's a unified system of, of there's a there's a systematic approach to how the West views the rest of the world, and there's a special view that it has towards Asia, and you know we fall uh, under that gaze too, you know, um, it 
being an Asian American doesn't doesn't necessarily free free you from um, those perspectives. So, but I think this also ties into the whole idea of like that benevolent white liberal male, right? That we're trying to talk about, and that whole idea is sort of blown up now. Yeah. So you you guys ever see the movie Troy? Yeah, I've seen it. I can't forget those oily pecs. Yeah, or like Brad Pitt's like a Chippendale dancer. Like <laughs> he, he wears like a leather miniskirt in <laughs> the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there's a scene in it which remind, which I think is pertinent to this. So it's when uh, Menelaus challenges Paris to a duel. Because, you know, like if, it, if people don't know how the Trojan War supposedly started, it's when Paris steals Menelaus' wife, Helen. Uh, so Menelaus wants to, you know, kick, kick uh, Troy's ass and, and kill him. So they fight, I mean, not, not Troy, uh, Paris. So they fight and, well, okay, uh, so Paris is played by Orlando Bloom. That's all you need to know. <laughs> he <laughs> clearly loses the fight. And as Menelaus is about to kill him, Paris just like slinks away on all fours and just like hugs the, the legs of his brother, Hector. Oh, just like pathetic, like he's just acting like pathetic. Yeah, he's just pathetic, loser, not a man, whatever. And then Menelaus, like, yeah, like Helen's watching on the wall. He like looks at her and screams like, this is what you left me for. <laughs> and, and I think this is what like Asian guys felt when Trump got elected. And, and then I think even more so when the Weinstein and Me Too movement came out. Because like for so long, like Asian American mainstream liberalism has been predicated on this notion that uh, like, you know, white people, especially white men, were so progressive, so enlightened, so such gentlemen. Asian men were such backwards. We are, we, we uh, were geeks, but we also beat our women. We also cheat on, on our wives and girlfriends, even though we're like dickless, uh, you know, eunuchs, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever uh, makes us look bad. And for this to happen, I think really, like, we always felt that that was kind of bullshit, but we could never really say it out loud and have full public support but then you see something like trump happen and you see how much white support he got especially white male support even like the college educated white male mm -hmm. support mm -hmm. and that i think emboldened a lot of people to uh asian guys to just come forward and say you know what this is like like this double standard we've had enough of it we're gonna speak out i can see that i mean i see i see this online a lot more than i see in real life i, I still it's really interesting because i think online asian american culture is like so much more based than raw for better or for worse uh than than in yeah. real life as you said online is the front line yeah online is the front line yeah for sure um i mean i still think of it as an indicator of what was really happening in people's minds and stuff but i would say that like for me it was you know i, I up until around trump came down that escalator, I was kind of bought into the, you know, to this vision of, I don't want to say a post-racial utopia, though, I guess that is what it was, right? Like, I, I bought into this vision of this continuous, sometimes slow, sometimes fast progress that we were making. And mm -hmm. yeah, I me think, too. Yeah, I think we all did to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as an Asian guy, like, it's not, it's not like I was, didn't see that there were aspects of it to it that like were prejudicial against, you know, different groups and and also that it that it differentiated there was a title force like it, it it operated differently between the genders i noticed this stuff but i always kind of felt like you know what you just live up to your sort of like what's expected in this new world and i think a lot of people a lot of and i'm not saying white guys weren't like this too but a lot of a lot of uh, people were living up to or trying to live up to these ideals but seeing that there were certain people that just didn't and you kind of just grinned and bared it for a little bit, you know? And I think, I feel like for me, that was the feeling, was a sense of grinning and bearing it for, for, for what would eventually be a, a better outcome. But what bothered me for sure was like, you know, kind of when I stepped into, got a little bit more blatant when I stepped into the working 
world because I worked in a lot of very alpha type um, work environments where that mentality, you know, the mentality that you found in that at the university had not really penetrated that far beyond the campus uh, borders. Mm-hmm. And when you got to work, you kind of started seeing like there was st- there was still like this um, a more raw kind of work culture. And you would definitely see differential treatment of men versus women. And then on an intersectional level, Asian men were treated one way and Asian women were treated a very different way. And it made the what I was seeing in terms of like media representation and what popular writing and stuff about progress and social progress to be, it just felt very, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance. The way that, uh, you, you know, even people like I, like someone that I'm still friends with, like I remember I, we went out and he was basically kind of bragging about how like Indian girls were as easy as candy on Tinder for him. And I was like, you know, we're hanging out with an Indian guy right now. He's our, you know, like. <laughs> Be a little sensitive, man. Yeah, but no, but they, but that was the interesting thing was they had, they felt, you know, there's no problem with this. And I guess just these, these, and that's a very minor experience. There were, there were much more serious issues that happened that, um, you know, are kind of like work work uh work folk folklore at this point yeah i, I completely agree about the grinning and bearing thing I yeah mean, I, I'm, there's a total coincidence i mean i, I every day i i uh, post these articles under the hashtag asian reading list just like articles i've read in you know like the past few years that i think are good and the, i posted one today which i posted because it was really bad it was, it was something um in 2011 published by this i guess student newspaper called nyu local and it was about yellow fever, and I thought it was a really good example of just how backwards and primi- primitive the like Asian American racial dialogue was back then. And uh, the the worst part is they quote this Asian guy who's clearly bothered by this social dynamic in which he is left out of this supposedly um, progressive pairing in which white guys and Asian girls uh, have this like mutual fetish for each other. But then he says. But you know what? If, uh, if people of other races can appreciate Asianness in whatever form, that's good for us. And it was just such face saving. Like he was, I was obviously pissed off about it, but he could not say it because he. Oh, we, I it see. was 2011. Yeah. And it was at a time when, if you spoke about it, you were there, a loser. There would be no support out there. Post racialism, or we were on the path to it. And if you oppose this, then you were the same as like a, like a KKK member opposing like loving versus Virginia in like 1967 or whatever. And yeah, then that definitely, that was part of the grinning and Barrett. Like 2011, I remember that like era very well. And that was very accurate. Oh yeah. But they, but there's right. Like looking back, I think there's, I, I see this notion a lot online that, you know, people back then were just like chance, right? Like we were, we were like people just had no backbone. I don't think that's really what the experience was, though. Um, I'm sure if I turned a lens on myself uh, back then, looking looking from this perspective, like Chan, you know, you fucking saw. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, I I do remember. I'm a little older, so I do remember clearly what I was thinking. I mean, these things were thought out. Um, it's not like we were unaware. It's just that when we say, I think we use the term white very freely, and I've got problems with that term because it's, it doesn't really capture the complexity of what we're talking about here. There was, I think, a collective delusion of some sort, uh, which still kind of remains with us, uh, though it's, it's, it's mortally wounded or it's grievously wounded, but that there was, the, there was a 
uh, yeah, like a post-racial utopian space that right now seems like kind of like a fever dream, but back then seemed very realistic. And there was a feeling like, you know, we're moving incrementally towards something better and we will be there as well. And so you found yourself, I think, on the side of diversity, not on the side of whiteness, but on the just generalized support for the concept of diversity. Because to you, to me, inclusion meant there will be a spot for someone like me or people like me in the future. And you were just kind of grinning and bearing it because saying like, there is going to be a payoff. Yeah, totally agree. Although I will say that when I watched Master of None, this came out like late 2015, early 2016. I saw season one and I knew this was something I should have liked. Uh, because it was like starring, uh, you know, diverse cast, and it was about you know like young people in in like New York City, college educated, whatever. I saw that and I was like, There's something wrong with this. I I can't quite put my finger on it, but like everybody loves it, but I think I hate this. <laughs> yeah, and, right, right. and then actually uh, to plug my own work, my first article ever for Plan A was about this thing, and I I think it was that it was the fact that it represented this. This like queuing up of inclusion into that like white dominated diverse world, and we were supposed to like this because it was about it was it was centered around an Indian guy Aziz Ansari, but everything he did was so white. It, it was I I I remember like the, the when the show lost credibility with me was he's in, I think it's in the first episode he's in this like some kind of like vintage toy store which where probably like a seesaw costs like five hundred dollars. <laughs> he runs into his ex girlfriend. She's like the waspiest blonde wasp ever, and like, that's supposed to be his ex girlfriend. And I was just thinking like, what is this? This is not like the typical experience of a minority man. You know, you don't yeah. go into an expensive mm-hmm. toy store and you run into your Aryan princess and that's your ex-girlfriend. And the first scene is seeing you fucking a white girl. It's like, what is this? This is such backwards aspirational bullshit. And yeah, and from then <laughs> yeah, on, it was all Yeah, especially like for, yeah, for me too. Like, I, especially living in New York, you realize what a small particularized segment of new york society that that really represents and i mean it's it's like a micrometer of the experience i mean it's 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 ridiculously small but you know you know i get what you're saying team um about how sort of you you grin and bear it but in you know in my experience and, and you said this earlier you you mentioned cognitive dissonance and i think that was such a huge part of my becoming like an adult um, like, uh, like after college, right. Is that I was observing all of these things, right? Like I went to a fairly, you know, I went to college and I, I just observed these, uh, you know, the, just the dating, just, you know, the, the disparity and the, and the, and the imbalance. And, you know, you, you watch these movies and TV shows and, you know, you, you just get a sense of sort of where Asian people are, men and women. And you're like, why is this happening? as being a liberal you're just like okay maybe maybe i just need to grin and bear it like like oxford you mentioned the the kid from nyu who's sort of like well maybe a win for for asian women is a win for asian men too like social regonomics yeah <laughs> right right social something right yeah maybe social economic uh, regonomics trickle down but you it, there's a part of you still that's like nah that doesn't quite sit right i don't, I don't it doesn't feel right like there's it, still a pit in my stomach about it, but then you you know then you you then you're like wait a minute but if I say it I'm gonna come across I'm gonna look like a misogynist I'm gonna look like all these other things and I don't I'm not I'm not that I don't want to yeah, be some that. like Confucian tyrant from right 
right. Qin Dynasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. So you're like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like that. But so, so for a while you can live with it, but you still observe these realities. You still, it's still there. So it doesn't go away. Yeah. The thing is, nothing we are saying right now is new. That's the thing. No, like, no, it's I've not. Been, you know, I've it, been involved online for like over a decade. I've heard all this stuff talked about. Then I read, you know, like Frank Chin's essay, you know, like, um, come all ye Asian writers of the real and fake. I yeah, read it. And when did, like, you, this when just did he write this, that? That was like in the 70s, right? 70s. And it reads like a Reddit post. It's so oh, yeah, fresh does, still. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure that he wasn't the first either. I'm sure he got that from like Asians in, in like the 1940s as they were putting, getting put in the internment camps, like the no-no boys or whatever were probably writing stuff like, oh, fuck these like JACL chants, you know, things yeah, like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they had their own Reddit back in the day. And yeah, it's... Well, and if you read something like, you know, another seminal book, right, is Orientalism, which is by, isn't he like Lebanese or something? Um, Edward Said? Said? Uh, yeah, some, somewhere from the Middle East, yeah. Yeah, like it's called Orientalism. We assume it's about Asians. It's about, you know, people in, in the Arab world. And, um, uh, but it's totally applicable. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I think, um, I think though that that, le- for me, it leads to, uh, maybe so it actually kind of leads me to your, I think it's your second article, Oxford, was the, was the, uh, was the alt-right, you know, the, oh yeah. And I think, you know, what, what happened, what's interesting, I think it leaves us in this weird position where it's like in the, I think of America it, roughly as sort of like these two camps, right? It's like the liberal elite, coastal, urban, you know, parts of, parts of the country and then sort of, you know, outside of that. Right. And for, for, from my perspective, it's like. Asian guys have always been sort of like number two on the on the you know in a way or or in in some realms and then sort of at the bottom in others. But like we were always sort of in our bubble in the, in this bubble, and we kind of were at, on the lower decks in a way. And so we kind of saw we had our own sort of criticisms, but like you know you're all kind of rowing together, right? And so you're not going to upset the system because it's like you are more scared of what's out there than what's in here. And that was I think you know that moment where. Oxford, maybe where you were like contemplating, you know, your future on the on the balcony is like, okay, oh well, yeah, <laughs> oh fuck, Trump won. <laughs> yeah, the ship just capsized. Am I gonna be conscripted into World War Three? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think the second article that you wrote, which I think stemmed out of some of the conversations that we were all, a lot of us were having, was this sort of like weird cog. What's the opposite of cognitive dissonance, right? Like a cognitive resonance, uh, with some of the complaints that the uh, the barbarians so to speak had about this elite bubble si- system their complaints about this system in many ways mirrored uh, or was re- resonant with some of our unspoken complaints about it and their perspective almost seemed fresher and more realistic and more honest in a way about all the corruption and all this stuff and that now like you said with uh with you know schneider being being, being the latest domino to fall there was this sort of like internal chaos and purge that kind of all the family secrets were were laid out on the table. And now it's like, that's it. Like, see, I knew it. I Like, I knew that, you know, some of these guys were horrendous racists, were horrendous misogynists, rapists, all this stuff. And you were, you know, you spent the last 20 years, 30 years, you know, pretending like you were this um, renaissance man and uh, a feminist and, you know, all this stuff. And like, I knew it was bullshit. You know, that's that's how it felt. And I thought that article was just saying, hold on, 
don't get that don't get too resident now <laughs> like you know like right, you know, right. <laughs> don't don't go overboard <laughs> yeah. now so it's a very dangerous yeah it's a very dangerous position so go, go, kind of going back to when we were like kind of branching off into saying oh we got to start reading up about neoliberalism and leftist critiques of political economy and stuff like that it's important to me because it's like yeah, I think all the ground's really been um, the the rug's been kind of taken uh, uh, sh- uh, pulled out from under our feet, and it's it's too easy for us to draw incomplete conclusions. And I think now is the time for Asian Asian people, Asian Americans, to really think for ourselves using what has already you know a lot of the stuff out there that's been ignored for a while. Don't feel beholden to the two party system. Or anything like that. Or, I mean, don't even think in partisan terms. I mean, just read up, you know. I mean, the good thing is that I think Asian guys have a natural aversion to the, I guess, the establishment alt-right just because of, of the, you know, reported yellow fever they have. Yeah, <laughs> so that's true. Like, that's yeah. true. a natural repellent. And we, uh, when we say we, uh, Asian guys, uh, definitely know we're not welcome there. And the only Asian-ness they, they accept is for their, for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think for... For Asian guys, I see, like, I I've very closely followed the, you know, the 2016 Democratic primaries. I saw how easily the term misogynist was thrown around, especially uh, yeah. by supporters of Hillary Clinton. Yeah, mm-hmm. that really bothered me. So I think if you're on the, if you're on the left, you can't be afraid of that label so long as you know that you are not a sexist yourself and you are, you know, talking with women who have ideas that aren't always in sync with yours, you know, that aren't just your yes women or whatever. As long as you know that, I think you have to know that if you're in the left, that's going to be almost like an insult, almost like nanny nanny boo boo, you're a shithead kind of (laughs) insult and not get so rattled by it because that's going to be the easiest way to target you, especially as like, I think an Asian guy, because of the, the decades of this kind of idea of the you know the, the who, who's the who's the uh the bad guy in like all those comics fu manchu yeah the fu manchu you know like the, evil the yellow Asian claw <laughs> the yellow claw so, that was an actual villain adding to that like you know we also have to be aware like we are walking there there's still like you know the battleground from like gamergate and all that stuff is still smoldering and, mm. you know, there are a lot of, like, really wounded people out there in terms of, like, things that they experienced and, and witnessed in terms of real misogyny. And, of course, um, you know, pe- people are very, uh, you know, uh, their defenses are up. And um, sometimes you'll walk into attacks and it's not necessarily about you or whatever. I mean, you know, how, how are they going to glean what you what who you are from a tweet or or even from you know from an article or something like that so i but i think like yeah you're right i think you you know you've got to come to terms with like your own feelings about like your own views on stuff your real views on stuff and be aware that people are are slinging all sorts of accusations out there not necessarily because they're crazy uh but because there have been some serious you know scraps out there that have not yet resolved that I don't think a lot of us were a part of, to be honest. I, I didn't know what... And the best way to defuse, I, I fully know that there is this potentially dangerous element out there of, of some like very marginalized people. But the only way to defuse that is, I think, to build some kind of rapport with them, some credibility, because they've been so cast out into shadows. And once we have that, then we can kind of talk them off the ledge. Because I've I've had certain times in like like Twitter, for example, in which some guys I, I assume they're guys I you know I'm assuming they're genuine people, not trolls or whatever. They'll they'll tweet something in reply to something I post, and it's just like horrendous shit. And I'll tell them, "Yo, take this down. Like you can't say that. This is wrong." And 
the only reason they take it down is like, okay, I know I've read what you've wrote. I've heard your podcast. I know you're not just some tool of, of like the Asian American mainstream establishment. So I'm going to do that, but only because of that. So you need to build some credibility with them because as crazy as they might seem, there is some, there, they have some part, they've been unfairly pushed out on, on some yes, for sure. degree. Yeah. yeah, agreed. It's tough, but it, yeah, I mean, it's got to, kind of has to be done. So I think uh, for a lot of Asian women, um, from, the, from their perspective, I think a lot of them are relatively new to this. I, I, you know, they, they've come in only within the past couple of years or something, and it's really hard for them to understand, understandably so, to realize the whole backlog and, and pent up thing. And I think it's, I think it's incumbent on us both, both the Asian women and the men, like the Asian women to dig deeper, see what the history of this is, and for the Asian men to clearly present, okay, this is why this is happening and not and just have some patience, unleash right? anger and and just demand that they get it within a day. I or mean, like, no, no, I, I gather you guys would agree with this, but, you know, know this, right? Like, I think that their world got a little bit more upended by by 2016 and, and, and everything. Oh, for sure, for since. sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I as guys, yeah, as guys, like, we, we were watching the, the overturn, the overturning of a system that, like, we didn't buy into as much on average, I would say. I mean, a lot of us did, but, like, it, it just it just didn't include us in the same way and so we're, we're it, our worlds were not quite as upended as as theirs yeah i mean just look at the podesta email in which he said right uh, you know like we should have an asian person better if it's a woman than a man and that's in line very by the book of that kind of you know so-called diversity in which you're just pretty much like adding up points on on people what they bring on race and gender and like sexual orientation in which like a straight asian man you know not that valuable straight asian woman more valuable. And I think also to some extent, because that happened, I think like there are, I mean, we're only about how long has it been? Like a year, not even a year and a half, years. right? I mean, yeah. I would say that there's still a lot of hope that this is like a, just an aberration and we'll continue on that path. And I think as, as uh, I think Asian guys kind of understand that that's not really the case. Um, it's not going to go back to what it was. It'll, I mean, it's going to change, but that, you know, the, the system that we were promised was never as real as it seemed. So I do think that there's still a, a significant amount of denialism about how much things have not changed, but like how how phony that um, uh, that uh, conception of, of America was to begin with. And I think there's still a lot of hope and in, in, in clinging to that to some extent. And it's, it's going to take some time for people to come to terms with that fact. Yeah, it's not coming back. <laughs> No, yeah, Spoiler no, alert. I, I, yeah, no, I, I agree with you guys, but I think that there is some at least nascent understanding of that because of the changing tone of and focus of sort of like the yearly yellow fever type articles like Audra Lim wrote the article in the Times that was ostensibly a yellow fever article, but it focused on the sort of yellow fever of the alt-right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So like, I think there's, there is a nascent understanding or maybe a little bit of understanding that the equilibrium and, and then the, the, the point at which it will bounce back to will not be exactly the same <laughs> as it was. And it could be worse. Yeah, and you have the new inquiry in which they actually talk fairly extensively about agency on Asian women's part in this whole yellow exactly. fever thing, which... I mean, you compare that to like, say, the the NYU local article that I I posted on the Asian reading list uh, hashtag. It's yeah, it's it's light years 
ahead of that discussion. Uh, yeah, I mean, we got to keep going. And I think other people got to keep going, too, in terms of like trying to redefine or, or like get your bearings, you know, in terms of like what's happening out there. It's uh, it can be, it, you know, it can be pretty disorienting. I, I feel like a lot, of, you know, a lot of people I talk to, like, frankly, and, and me as me myself, I think like it is there was, you know, I'll admit to having some like feelings of despair in terms of not really knowing what the fuck is going on. But you got to huddle up and, and get your bearings, uh, preferably together. Um, and this time, you know, without without buying too heavily into naive or I'd say even uh, almost treacherous images of what you're meant to believe. Can we also put like a hundred year moratorium on the term male feminist? I think that's been so discredited. It, it yeah. Was, I, I remember in an episode of Master of None when the... When the Arnold character says something like, I'm a male feminist, I don't think it was meant ironically or like yeah. um, sarcastic. I think he really he meant it. And like, starting from like Hugo Schweitzer, I, I'm sure there was other scumbags before him, but it was just, it's such a self-serving, it's, it's definitely good if you're like a man and you believe in like feminist ideals, but it's like, don't label yourself that. It's just, I can't think of anyone who like called themselves that who hasn't like, turned out to be like a yeah. perverted well and the people that are calling for a moratorium on it are a lot of feminists who are now out there saying you got to beware the male feminist you know yeah so it's been going on though for like uh-huh years uh-huh but it's an archetype Weinstein. now yeah it's an archetype oh definitely you definitely. know and it's not a pleasant one i mean schneiderman was a male feminist all right it's uh 1022 we had we had that little mishap but i think we got over it uh, thanks for listening to Escape from Plan A. This was our podcast on Eric Schneiderman and all the shittery that he has unleashed, as well as Trump and Weinstein. So yeah, if you want to listen to more of our podcast, we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play. Please subscribe to us and give us five stars if you like us. You can also read our awesome articles on planamag.com features all sorts of takes on politics, culture. Every Friday, we have a playlist started by our own very talented John Kim called Fuck Yeah Fridays. A lot of uh, Asian hip-hop if you're into that kind of stuff, and you should definitely be. So yeah, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. All right, later all. We've been conducting an investigation for more than four months into the Weinstein Company, and our investigation, as demonstrated by the petition filed yesterday, uncovered a pervasive pattern of sexual harassment, intimidation, discrimination, and abuse at the Weinstein Company. And it is clear to us, and is set forth in our complaint, that the company's management was complicit in this pattern of misconduct. They knew what was happening. It was flagrant. It was flamboyant. Uh, they knew how pervasive it was. And not only did they fail to stop it, they enabled it and covered it up.